I would like to invite the rest of you as they make their way over to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We'll be starting in the book of Galatians, chapter 1. That's in the New Testament. If you go to the Gospels, keep turning toward the back, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians. You will run into that a short letter. It's about six chapters long. It is six chapters long. So um, listen, I want to uh, just say a few thank yous as well, just like John did. Uh, we are really overwhelmed by God's provision for our church. And this, uh, this partnership that we've been able to you know, have with the Boys and Girls Club over the past couple of years of we just come in to serve and try to be a help to them has, uh, has really been a joy. And uh, they have been so gracious and generous to then allow us to meet here on Sunday morning. So I publicly want to thank Jacqueline, Luis, Lindsay for their generosity toward us. And uh, just, just it's amazing to see this morning uh, come to fruition. So uh, I've probably not had a chance to meet many of you. My name is Tanner Turley. I serve as the lead pastor here uh, of Redemption Hill. And we are, we are just kind of overwhelmed by God's grace to us. So, so let me give you a little backstory just so you can kind of feel the context of what's happening today, okay? So, so uh, back in about 06, all right, that's 2006, um, I began praying about the possibility of planting a church somewhere in America, okay? And as I was praying about that, God put a couple of clear, clear criteria in my heart. You can call them desires. Number one, to get outside of the Bible Belt where there are more gospel-centered churches that are proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And then number two, to get to a major city. So if you put those criteria on it, limit your options pretty quick. New York, D.C., Philly, Chicago, Boston, West Coast, you fill in the blank. So, so I actually took a short trip to Boston that following summer, came here to watch a Sox game. All right, can I get up for, for 91 wins, first place, hopefully on our way to the World Series, Red Sox? Okay, let's get excited about that. Let's be more excited about Jesus this morning. But uh, anyway, so I um, so came to a Sox game, kind of just fell in love with the city. Came back to North Carolina while I was in seminary and said, why not Boston? The need is as great there as it is anywhere else in the country for a gospel-centered evangelical church. Roughly 2.5% of the population of greater Boston attends a church that would be very similar to ours. So began praying about that. God began to put a team together, three families and, and, and a single young lady. We come up in the summer of of 2010, and it's just our leadership team of seven, and we begin slowly connecting with some of you who are here this morning. A community group then multiplies in September. Another one multiplies in January to where we're asking the question, hey, are we ready to start worshiping on Sundays? And God, we felt, was leading us to begin worshiping on Sundays in April. So April 10th, 2011, we have our first service at Spring Step. We're blown away by the crowd that came together. And then, long story short, God has just progressively answered our prayer to grow as a church both deeper and wider. Okay, so when we talk about deeper, we are talking about the gospel transforming us, changing us, that we might live for God and glorify God with our lives. And then, of course, we want to not only grow deeper inwardly and together, but we want to grow wider as a church, which means more and more people are coming to hear the gospel and be transformed by the work of Christ. So now let me say this, okay, and this is very important for where we're going this morning. 
It is awesome to see what has happened here with our serve teams, with, with everything that's come together to make September 15th happen. Okay, it's awesome to see all of you in the, the chairs here and a great crowd. But let's get one thing straight, okay? This church will never be measured, okay? The, 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 the quote-unquote, from the world's eyes, success of a church will never be measured by the seating capacity of this church. We can set up 260 chairs, have a lot of people in those seats, but, but, but we want to measure the success of our church by a lot of different variables. So our small groups capacity, community groups, we had over 100 people in our small groups this, this week more than we've ever had, unbelievable. We wanna be measured by our serving capacity, to serve together on Sundays, to serve in the community, all of these things. Many of you have connected with us through community events, whether it be soccer nights, Easter egg hunts, community fun night, serve Medford week, all of the different things, the ways that we serve at the Boys and Girls Club, the way that we serve Medford Housing Authority and many other partners in Medford, okay? So we want to, to be known for, for our, our small group capacity, our serving capacity, and seating capacity, and we could throw a few others in there, okay? But, but, but let me explain this, okay? What drives everything is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came and lived the life that we should have lived and honored God with our life that we did not do, and he died the death that we should have died in our place so that we might have life in him. And so when someone is changed by the gospel, then it changes everything about us. It changes the way, not only that we relate to God, but the way that we relate to one another. It changes our attitude in serving, that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for God and the sake of others, that we might serve them and give ourselves away rather than receiving just for ourselves. And on and on and on we could go. So that's why I'm really excited Okay? And it's very appropriate that we would be starting this morning in the book of Galatians because the book of Galatians is all about the power and the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know of, of no other book in the Bible that can explain the power and the sufficiency and the implications of the gospel like the, the book of Galatians. Okay, we get the Romans up there and, of course, the gospels that tell us about the life of Christ. But this study in Galatians, I think, is very appropriate as we start in this new place, worshiping as a faith community. So this morning, I want to talk to you from Galatians 1, 1 through 10, uh, this, this title, There is No Other Gospel. Okay, there is, there is absolutely no other gospel. And, and what I really want you to get this morning from these opening verses, as well as from the book of the, of a, as a whole, is this, that because the gospel is an inestimable treasure, we should be passionate for its purity, okay? Because the gospel is worth so much. It's so valuable. We should be passionate for the gospel and its purity, okay? We're gonna see what that looks like from Paul as we read here. So let me jump into the first five verses and we will work our way through all 10 this morning. Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. 
and all the brothers who are with me, grace to, you, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, the first thing that I want you to do this morning is understand the gospel is the good news of God's rescue mission through Jesus, all right? Understand the gospel is the good news of God's rescue mission through Jesus. Now, I know that sometimes when we open up to a New Testament letter, we see these introductory words, and it kind of feels like the same in every letter, so we pass over them quickly. But we really want to understand what Paul is saying here because it carries a lot of weight for understanding the book of Galatians as a whole, perhaps in this book more than most of the other uh, New Testament letters, okay? So Paul starts, and here's the introductory matter. Who is the author? Well, the author is the Apostle Paul, okay? And he throws in all of the brothers who are with me, all of those who were, who were hanging out with Paul and supporting his ministry and probably traveling around with him. He's saying, this is not only my gospel, but this is, this is the brothers, sisters who are with me, okay? And, and I'm going to communicate it to you. Now, who is, who is the Apostle Paul? Well, we find in the book of Acts, in the early chapters, that there was a man named Saul. And Saul was a religious leader of the Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had it all together by, by Israel's standards of righteousness and, and attaining, you know, salvation with God. And so we, we find that, that, that Saul was actually going around and persecuting Christians. He describes himself as a blasphemer, an insolent opponent, and a destroyer of the faith. This is how he writes about himself in his letters before, that is, he met Christ. So in Acts chapter 9, Paul is actually has some letters from the authorities, and he's going down to Damascus to apprehend some Christians so that he might see them persecuted. But when he's on his way to Damascus, Jesus meets him on the road. And here's a little tidbit for you, okay? Whenever you really meet Jesus, you're going to have maybe not the exact same experience as Paul did, where there's this vision of light and Jesus speaks to you audibly and sets you straight. But to one degree or another, whenever Jesus meets someone, he will absolutely flip your world upside down. And that's exactly what happens for Paul. He was a blasphemer. He was an opponent of Christ. And now he is living his life for God. And, and Jesus says, hey, you're going to go and be my witness to my resurrection among the Gentiles, okay? The people that do not belong to, 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 to Israel, to ethnic Jews, okay? And so Jesus calls Paul, he commissions Paul, and he sends him out to go preach the gospel. Now, the book of Acts records all of this for us. Paul went on three missionary journeys. And on the first journey, we find him in chapters 13 and 14, traveling through southern Galatia. All right? So if you go back and read Acts 13 and 14, you're going to see that he rolls through Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And he's taking the gospel to these cities as one who was sent out by Jesus. That's what an apostle, okay, meant. All right, and what, that's what he means by this. This is someone who has seen the risen Christ and can testify to what God has done in Christ. 
Now, because Paul is an apostle, that means he is carrying divine authority when he goes and shares the message of Christ and when he writes letters like the one we have here in Galatians. Now, two implications of this to the churches of Galatia. Number one, the gospel spreads as we open our mouths and tell people the good news of Jesus and they believe and become worshipers of God. So what we'll find then in the book of Galatians, if you want to peek down at verse 13, he refers to how he, again, here it is, persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Okay, so when Paul says the church of God, he is referring to the universal church, all Christians that were existing, wherever he could find them, he was going to try to take them out. So there is the universal church, that we find in the pages of Scripture, but then there are also local churches that are meeting in particular towns gathering to worship him, like in Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. okay? So what does this mean? It means that Christians should still do this today, and this is why we started a church here, so that we can gather together to devote ourselves to God and one another in the worship of him. This is one implication. So if you're new to Redemption Hill, we welcome you. If you've been around Redemption Hill very long, we hope that you'll consider pursuing church membership, getting plugged in, and being about the family and the mission with us because this is what we see happening in the New Testament. Okay, so that's one implication. Number two, the other implication is this is why we spread the gospel because we want more and more people to come to worship him. So these congregations were popping up all over the place as Paul and his companions went and shared the gospel, and this is what we want to be about as a church as well, okay? So just know, if you're new to Redemption Hill, we didn't come to Boston to start a church. We came to Boston to help start many, many, many churches. So many of you have already met church planner in Charlestown, Todd. Many of you have already met families in Newton that are working to start a, a church there in Newton. Many of you have met the Browns starting a church in Stone. Okay, so we're trying to pray, encourage, do whatever we can, whatever small little gifts we can give at this point, we're trying to support these works. This is why we're partnering with a church in Toronto, giving financially, praying for them as they start today, their very first service, just like we did April 10th, 2011, they're starting today in Toronto, a gospel-witnessing church in the city of Toronto, which is even less reached than the city of Boston. This is why John and Naveen spent two and a half days in Raleigh, North Carolina with our new partnership in India, missionaries there, so that we can come alongside and support them in the work because we want to see churches planted in greater Boston and to the ends of the earth. So Paul says to the churches of Galatia. And he says, grace and peace. These are the results of the gospel. God, grace is God's unmerited favor to us. Peace is what happens in our life when we get right with God. We have peace with God, peace with one another. Peace even, are you ready for this? Peace, peace with ourselves. Rest, hope, change. It's all a result of the gospel. And so why did Paul, on his missionary journey, go and spread the gospel to all these cities? And why do we want to do this today? It's because the gospel is this valuable. The gospel is an inestimable treasure. And so what is the message of the gospel? Well, as we go through these six chapters in Galatians, what you're going to find as we read through the book and study through the book, as Paul presents a lot of contrast as he works through 
the book, his letter. Okay, so we're going to see that there is law versus grace. There is works versus faith. There is flesh versus spirit. There is bondage versus freedom. There is slaves versus sons. And, and all of those contrasts help us more fully understand the gospel. And Paul actually unpacks it for us in verses 3 through 5. So what is the message of the gospel? Let me read verses 3 through 5 again. He says, this grace and peace is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so here is the gospel. Let's break it down. Jesus. Jesus is the eternal son of God, okay? Contrary to what Jehovah's Witnesses would tell you and some other false religions out there, Jesus, there was never a time when the son was not, okay? That's capital S, son of God. He was eternal. He became man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born into a family whose Father was a carpenter. Jesus learned how to swing a hammer work, and he did not launch his public ministry until about the age of 30. When he was around 30, he goes about and he starts preaching the kingdom, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, listen up, turn back to God, get your life right with God. And this, he is going to tell us, happens through me. When Peter is summarizing the life of Christ in Acts 10, he says that Jesus was mighty in word and deed. Okay, so this is why we went through the Gospel of Luke 40 weeks over the past year. So if you want to learn more about the life of Christ, go online, listen to those 40 sermons, and you'll have a pretty good introduction to the life of Jesus, all right? Might take you a couple weeks, but you can do it. Podcast it, bam. All right, so Jesus is the Gospel. And what was Jesus, if he was mighty in word and deed, what was Jesus' greatest deed? It was his sacrifice on the cross for our sin. So Jesus, it says, gave himself. Jesus voluntarily laid his life down on your behalf and my behalf that we might be reconciled to God. So in John chapter 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus laid his life down for us. I love what my man Octavius Winslow said. If you want to read along here, this is what, what Winslow says. He says, when he could give you no more. Okay, he's speaking of Jesus here. When he could give you no more and the fathomless depths of his love and the boundless resources of his grace would not be satisfied by giving you less. He gave you himself, robed in your nature, laden with your curse, oppressed with your sorrows, wounded for your transgressions, and slain for your sins. He gave his entire self for you. Jesus did not hold back one ounce of his love when he gave himself on the cross, that we might know God, love God, be reconciled to God, and worship him with our lives. So Jesus gave himself, and he gave himself, get those next three words, for our 
sins. Sin is anything that deviates from the will of God. Sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God when we fail to live out what he intends for us. So Paul is saying Jesus died because you have not measured up. You have not lived as God intended for you to live. This is, we can go back to the doctrine of original sin. And original sin just says we are born sinners, okay? We, why do you sin? Okay, you sin because you want to, all right? That's the short answer, right? Why do you sin? Why do you do what is not pleasing to God? It's because that's what you want to do. But fundamentally, why do you do that? We sin because we are sinful. We are born into sin. And if, if you want to kind of dispute this, I would just invite you, maybe not right now, but on a future Sunday, we'll get you upstairs with our children's ministry, all right, Subway 1, Subway 2, and we'll just kind of put that to the test and see if children don't display selfishness and, you know, um, just, just all kinds of, of anger and jealousy and envy. That's mine, you know, I mean, do you, do you, you get this, right? And if you say, well, well Tanner, I, I really don't care about God's standard for my life. That's not an argument to prove that I'm in broken and in need of help. Well, I would just pose this to you. If, if you today don't think you care about God's standard, I would just say, what are your standards for yourself? And if you tell me what your standards are, and you allow me to kind of watch your life and see how you measure up to your own standards, my prediction is you won't even measure up to your own standards, which tells us there is something deeply broken within us. And this is why we need Jesus to give himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age. This word deliver can be translated rescue, okay? We need to be rescued by God in order to have life with him. So Tim Keller says it well. He says, when someone is drowning at sea, we do not throw them an instruction manual on how to swim. Is that a good idea? I mean, that's not a very good idea, right? We don't throw them an instruction. We throw them a rope so that they might be pulled out and rescued. And this is exactly what we need Jesus to do for us. We need him to rescue us, to deliver us, because the Bible tells us we are completely helpless, hopeless in our sin, apart from God's grace, coming down and saving us and pulling us out and rescuing us. The Bible uses words like helpless, blind, lost, and even, you ready for this, dead in your sins and trespasses. That's why we need God to open our eyes, help us to see, give us life that we might now be delivered from the present evil age and be reconciled to God. Now, all of this was according to the will of our God and Father. So if we look back to the Gospels and we see the Roman authorities crucifying Jesus at the command of the Jewish authorities, we might conclude, well, it was really the Romans and the Jews who were responsible for the death of Jesus. But we just said, wait, Jesus gave himself for our sins. He voluntarily laid his life down. So who is responsible? Well, the answer is yes, but ultimately, Jesus gave his life, and that was according to the will of God. 
So we find these shocking words in Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord. Speaking of God the Father, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the son, on the cross. He was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, our sin, that we might have life and be delivered. The, 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 the son's heart and the father's heart are always one, and they were one in those moments in his crucifixion and his resurrection. So, so, so hopefully when we really understand the gospel, okay, this does something to us that just changes us and causes us, moves us to respond to God and worship. I mean, when you think about that you were really dead, okay, what does that mean? You, you had no ability to see, no ability to hear. Your heart was not beating spiritually. You didn't have true joy. You didn't have true peace. You didn't really know what true love is. And then God changes all that in Christ. It's amazing. So let me ask you a question that a church planter who's a pastor of a church in Texas, the Austin Stone, he asked this question of every church planter candidate, okay? People, guys who want to go and start new churches, he asked them this question at the very end of the assessment. He's, he's, he asked this, when was the last time that the gospel made you weep? When is the last time the gospel made you weep? You see how perfect and holy God is. You see how sinful we are. You see at what great cost Jesus came and lived and bled and died and rose again that we might have life in him. And that has to move us. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I believe it will move us to tears. So when is the last time the gospel made you weep? And when is the last time, and hopefully you can at least answer the affirmative this morning, when is the last time the gospel moved you to worship? Because this is what is going on in the passage. Paul says, Jesus gave himself for your sins, delivered from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we saw this last week in the book of Romans. Romans 11, 33 through 36 is a doxology. It is a word of praise in light of everything that Paul had said in the first 11 chapters, which unpack the gospel. So, so do you see what's going on here? Paul loves the gospel so much. He is so passionate about the gospel that when he reflects on the gospel, he can't help but praise God for what he's done. And here's the deal. We praise what we love, right? And we promote what we deeply care about. And this is how Paul is with the gospel. He, he lets people know how deeply important it is to him. So that's why then in verses 6 through 9 that we find that he is so astonished that people are moving away from the gospel. So read those verses with me, if you will. He says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one 
we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay? So, so we need to understand not only the, the gospel is the good news of God's rescue mission for Jesus, but then because of that, we need to be consumed with an indestructible passion for the purity of the gospel. I hope you saw in verses three through five how that the gospel and the glory of God are bound up together, right? Paul can't speak of the gospel without praising the glory of God. So so when something comes in to threaten the gospel, to pull people away from the gospel, it provokes Paul to jealousy and zeal to say, hey, we need to make sure people really stick with the gospel and understand the gospel, So when we see Paul's tone here, for the astute reader of the New Testament, which I know all of you are, right? Maybe, maybe not. If you're new, it's no problem. But but if you read Paul's letters, what you're going to find is every one of his letters, except Galatians, starts with a greeting, hey, I'm Paul, grace and peace to you. And then it always has this word of thanksgiving. I'm so thankful for what God's doing in your life and in your church and how you're displaying faith, hope, and love and all these things. Go read Philippians. Go read Colossians. It's all there. But when we read Galatians, what we find is he says, hi, I'm Paul, grace and peace. And what on earth is going on in Galatia? He's astonished. He says that, that they're turning from the gospel. It's, it's a word, turning. It means to transfer one's allegiance. So, so what we have going on are these false teachers, these people who were leading the Galatians astray, saying you can turn to a different version of the gospel, which is really no version at all, he says. You're turning to a different gospel, but there's really not another one. You can't turn to a different gospel because there's only one gospel. And this is why Paul's kind of temperature, if you will, is rising when he hears what's going on with the churches of Galatia because he loves the glory of God and he is very, very concerned about these people, okay? The aim of Paul's charge, 1 Timothy 1.5, okay, it's so good, is love. Everything he does is driven by love and that should be true of us as well. So, So what were these false teachers saying? They were basically saying this, okay? It's Jesus plus X, Y, and Z, okay? Yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need to, if you're a Jew, continue to keep the Mosaic law and all the the restrictions and dietary commands and all this. And if you're a Gentile, okay, a non-Jew, then you're really in a mess because you need to be circumcised if you're a male, and then you need to keep the Mosaic law, all right? So, So what they're doing is, They're taking Jesus and saying, oh yeah, Jesus, mm, really not enough. You need to do X, Y, and Z to really be accepted and pleasing to God. And so this is where Paul jumps in and says, if you add anything to Jesus, you just lost me. And more importantly, you just lost the gospel. We can add nothing. By the way, this this is the difference, okay? between Christianity and every other religion in the world, okay? Christianity says, this is what God has done for you, has done for us. 
Every other religion says, this is what you need to do to earn your way to God. And so Paul just isn't having any of that. He says, even if, even if an angel from heaven, insert Mormonism, insert Islam, okay, or, or, or us, and we'll talk about this in a moment, if anyone contradicts the gospel, then they have moved away from what has the power to change you and to save you. And so Keller says, the moment you revise the gospel, you reverse it. You got that? The moment you revise the gospel, the moment you tweak the gospel, you have reversed it and you have lost it. I know we have some students in here and you've started back to school, right? And most of us can remember our school days when we had to write papers and, you know, um, the, the really wise thing. Okay, I didn't always get this in my early days, all right? But, but I learned from English teachers and others that it's really good to write a rough draft and then to write another draft and revise it, and another draft, and revise it, and another draft, and revise it. Okay, so students, I'm really sorry for bringing this up. It's only the first week of classes. Okay, I get that. Don't be mad at me, okay? But, but, but in order to produce a good paper, you need to work on it, improve it, revise it, so that you can do the best you can do, and impress your professor, and make an aid to the glory of God, right? Um, so, so hopefully that's the goal. But with the gospel, there, there is no room for revision. There's no room for tweaking the gospel. We can add absolutely nothing to the gospel. So, so Paul is trying to drive home the point that here's, here are the theological emphases of Galatians. It is salvation by grace, and it is justification through faith. The, the justification is a fancy word to say, how are you going to be right in God's sight? How would he count you righteous and acceptable and pleasing to him? And Paul is saying it's through trusting in Christ and not your own work. So, so lest you think I'm picking on, you know, Mormonism and Islam, okay, although that is, that is another way altogether. We're talking about apples and oranges, all roads by the very understanding of, of the systems, can't all lead to God, okay? No, no Muslim and Christian are going to agree on that if they really read their, 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 their sources of authority uh, rightly. But, but, but lest you feel like I'm picking here, well, let's talk about the church. Legalism. It's, it's Jesus and then, you know, go to church, read your Bible every day, be a, be a good little Christian, and when you, you aren't, you're less pleasing to God. Okay, so your standing is always based on the righteousness of Christ. It's not Jesus plus your good work. It's not Jesus plus your church attendance. It's not Jesus plus penance and the sacraments. I mean, the only way to heaven in a relationship with God is by the work of Christ. So Martin Luther says this, and we're going to see this again and again and again as we go through Galatians. He says, there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. The only, there is no alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. You got that? So, so when you stand before God one day, if you ask, you know, 10 people on the streets of Medford, hey, do you believe in God? And they say, yes, I do. And you say, well, do you believe there is a heaven? And they say, well, yes, I do. Most people, probably nine out of 10 are gonna answer, well, why would God let you into heaven? And they're gonna say, because I'm a good person, because I've tried to be a good person, because I'm not as bad as the next guy. 
And so what they have just done is based their righteousness on their own works. But we know that we can never be righteous in God's sight apart from Christ. And then when we receive his righteousness, he sets us free to do good works. Okay, so, so faith and works, there is this, uh, a relationship there, but, but faith comes first and then God frees us to love him and love others in light of the work that he's done in us. So Paul goes on and he says, look, you are going to be prone. You're going to be tempted to default back to works righteousness. And that will never make you acceptable and pleasing to God. And he, and he kind of raises the bar and he says, even, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. What does that word accursed mean? It means let him receive final condemnation, okay? To, to deviate from the gospel is to receive, okay? If you're teaching that to others and you, and you stay deviated from the gospel, it is to receive one day eternal punishment, to reject Christ, all right? So, so this, is, this is not a, a popular message, but it's what the Bible's message is. And we never want to soften what the Bible says. We just want to tell you what the Bible says. Hell is a real place. It is... It is, it is more horrific than you can imagine. But heaven is much, much better. And we can have that through Christ. Amen. So Paul will make statements like this in the New Testament. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. But far be it for me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6, 14. For Paul, the cross was everything. And, and, and so I want to kind of dive down just another foot or two or, or 20 or 50, okay? And, and, and help you understand this. Not only... Can we be pulled away from the gospel by external sources like false teachers and philosophical and religious systems that don't accord with the gospel, but we can also be turned away from the gospel by internal sources, okay? So our perception of experiences, our feelings can drag us away from the gospel. Well, I don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel like God is with me. And anytime we, we say those things and, and they don't measure up with what is in the scriptures, then we don't need to trust our feelings or experience or our reason. We need to trust what the Bible says, okay? So th check this out for Paul, okay? And this is to get a kind of more theological discussion and debate, but, but the church and tradition is not the ultimate authority for how we live our lives, okay? Okay? And how do we know this? It's because Paul says, even if I come back and say something that contradicts what I've already told you, don't listen to me. See that? So, so it's always God's truth is the plumb line to help us figure out what is true and what we can really trust in our lives. So Paul is giving a heavy dose of what we could call real talk here, okay? He is shooting straight. He is holding nothing back because he loves these people so much and because he is a servant of Christ. So this is what we see then in verse 10 
when he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So this is, this is Paul's deal. You got it? Paul is not writing to make enemies. Paul is not writing to tear anyone down. Paul is writing as a servant of Christ for the pleasure of God to build these people up, even these false teachers, if they would get in line with the gospel. So I love what one of my two primary mentors taught me in seminary, Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. He said this, I can sum up my philosophy of life in 10 words. All that matters in life is that you please God. All that matters in life is that you please God. So, so we are tempted to fulfill our own desires. We are tempted to care more about what others think around us than what God thinks of us. But Paul says, look, live for the pleasure of God. Seek God's approval with your life. And oh, by the way, all right, as an encouragement, a good litmus test to see if you are seeking the approval of man or of God or seeking the pleasure of men or of God is to just look back and see how active you are and not only displaying the gospel with your life, but also sharing it with others, verbalizing it. Hey, this is who Jesus is and the difference that he's made in my life. And would you also consider this what he has done? So, so, so this is what Paul is about. And so to conclude, this is what I want to ask you to weigh out this morning in your own heart. How important is the gospel to you? Have you received the gospel, the work of Christ on your behalf, trusting in what he did in his resurrection that can give you life, both abundant life now, joy, peace, love, all of those things, and eternal life with him forever? Have you received this work? And are you living by the power of the gospel daily that changes us to be more servant-hearted, more generous to others, and to glorify God? Is the gospel moving you both to weep and to worship? The gospel is this good. The gospel is an inestimable treasure it is both worth receiving and sharing. So let's ask God to help us receive it and ask God to live it out every single day. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your truth to us in your word. And Father, I pray that for anyone who has never truly embraced the gospel, what Christ has done for them in his death and resurrection, God, that you would open their eyes just to see the value of knowing Christ and, and, and living their lives for him. And Father, it's my prayer for all of us, all of the people that that is true, that, that we would embrace the power of the gospel to transform us, that we might be agents of change in your hands to glorify you and to make a difference in our cities, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in every place that you put us. God, help us to honor you 
with our lives. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for bringing us here. And Lord, we pray that you would do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.